Jake Adelstein is no ordinary crime reporter. The crime's not ordinary and neither's the way he covered it. Jake's in-depth knowledge of organised crime in Japan comes from getting deeply embroiled in the Japanese underworld and the notorious Yakuza. Jake was the first non-Japanese person to become a staff writer at Japan's Yomiuri Shimbun newspaper. And as an outsider who grew up on a farm in Missouri, he did things very differently from homegrown reporters. Jake's 2009 memoir, Tokyo Vice, an American reporter on the police beat in Japan, has since also become the TV drama Tokyo Vice. Now, Jake's released a new book, The Last Yakuza, Life and Death in the Japanese Underworld. Jake, welcome to Sunday Extra. I am delighted to be here. Uh, Jake, the Yakuza have, for what of a better expression, uh, global brand recognition, but for most that recognition probably doesn't extend much beyond the name. What exactly is the Yakuza? Well, I mean, it's a handy term used for about 23 different organized crime groups in Japan. They have similarities in that they like to get tattooed, they have corporate emblems, they have extortion and blackmail and racketeering as their mainstays. And they all claim to be chivalrous organizations like the Boy Scouts that are preserving the harmony of Japan. And weirdly, I mean, there's these 23 groups. They have a legal right to exist in Japan. So they have headquarters. Uh, they have business cards. Um, until 2019, there were fan magazines devoted to their exploits and their history. You know, Japan's organized crime is very organized and it's very much in your face. That's astounding. Uh, the last Yakuza presents itself as meaning to tell the history of the Yakuza in the last century, but it's not a history in the conventional sense for legal reasons and specifically some changes in Japanese law. Could you tell us about that? Oh, yeah. Um, this book and the origins were, um, without getting into in deep into the woods here, um, I hired an ex-Yakuza to be my bodyguard and driver during the period of my life when I was in under police protection. He was an ex-boss, and he asked me, like, I want you to write a book about my life because I'm proud to be a Yakuza. We're not all terrible. And as I, you know, agreed to do it, I said, look, you know, I, I, I can't just write the book about you. It has to be more encompassing, and I don't want to glorify your organization or the Yakuza. And he agreed. So, you know, I wrote it and I was very happy with the first draft. And then as I was doing a legal review, I realized that in 2010, Japan repealed the statute of limitations on murder, meaning, you know, if you had committed a murder 15, 20 years ago, suddenly you could actually be held responsible for it because they made the law, they made the changes retroactive. That's a real problem when you have people who've told you about things that they've done that are now under no statute of limitations or under a longer statute of limitations. Because technically, right, when someone tells you something as a reporter, if, if, unless they say off the record first, it's on the record. But I don't think the circumstances are the same when what they told you at the time couldn't put them in jail, and now it could. So that required a lot of rewriting and actually taking out some really great chapters. But what are you going to do? I mean... As a journalist, your job is to protect your sources, even if they are um, sociopathic criminals. <laughs> you mentioned the Yakuza code, uh, like a sort of honor code. Could you tell us a little bit about that? What's entailed in it? And is it uh, an honor code that's honored uh, in the compliance or the breach? Generally speaking, 
you know, up until the last maybe 10 years or maybe 15 years, they were actually very good about upholding this code. And and the code is very simple. It, I mean, it, it's a bare minimum is, you know, as a Yakuza, you cannot steal. You cannot engage in armed robbery. You cannot commit sexual assault. You are not supposed to bother ordinary citizens. Uh, also, you're forbidden to use or sell drugs. A lot of people upheld that for many years. And, and that's kind of the social contract, kind of like, okay, yes, you're criminals. Yes, you're involved in extortion. Yes, you're involved in racketeering. But you don't kidnap people. You don't kill civilians. You don't break into people's homes and steal their stuff. You don't mug people. You don't snatch purses. So in some senses, you know, the Yakuza were part of the public order. And as long as they, you know, upheld those principles, the police kind of looked the other way. I mean, look at this way. Would you rather have a juvenile delinquent like beating up um, drunken men on the way home and taking their wallets? Or would you rather have them, you know, to be disciplined gangsters collecting protection money from the local businesses? What what is more conducive to the sense of public safety? That that would be their explanation. One of the news stories in the last Yakuza is about a 1995 kidnapping and torture of one Yakuza member by another for ransom. Now, you mentioned kidnappings against the Yakuza code. How did that story come about? And what was the role of your composite associate, Saigo, in that drama? Oh, th- this was a story that I wanted to write for years and years. And I, and I, I, I made a promise that I would not write it um, while Saigo was alive. But his role was, you know, a close friend of his boss was kidnapped. And when they were holding him hostage... He remembered the sound of a particular chime in the area. Um, in, in Japan, around 5 o'clock, at various locations, there's a chime that goes off with you know various tunes, basically telling the kids it's time to go home and signaling at the end of the day. Um, they're often very distinctive. So Saigo's job was to go around the area where the, you know, the Yakuza boss was kidnapped and held ransom and record every single one of those chimes until they could locate the area that he had probably been held. And then from there, he's like a private detective. They started searching for any Yakuza or criminals in the area who might be involved in kidnapping. So it was kind of like this amazing investigation, except the investigation was done by the Yakuza. Meanwhile, the police were also investigating this at the same time. And I think the Yakuza wanted to capture the criminal first. Uh, so it's a very fascinating tale. And, you know, I, I kept my word. Um, Saigo passed away during the pandemic. I'm, I'm not giving away too much. But um, then I felt like, well, now is the time to write this story. It's it's a pretty grisly, horrible story, but it's also a great example of how the Yakuza used to police themselves. The broad sweep of the last Yakuza covers an era in which the Yakuza really seemed to dominate um, Japanese parts of Japanese society, but there's a sense of more recent decline. Could you sort of chart that out for us and give us your sense of where the Yakuza is at in Japan today? Yeah, um, I think that the Yakuza, you know, like everyone, they push too far. And maybe the thing that they did that was the most wrong is they began threatening the police. Because up until like 2009, the Yakuza and the police had a sort of live and let live relationship. But when one Yakuza group, which is the Yamaguchi-gumi Kodokai, hired private detectives to steal the phone records of police officers and then men again threatening those police officers 
Um, you know, in in ways like when a police officer would be interrogating a Yakuza boss, uh, the Yakuza boss would mention, like, shouldn't you be home for your daughter's birthday? You know, that kind of subtle things like we know where you live. Basically, the Japanese police were like, no, you know, that is unacceptable. When you start threatening us, you have you've gone over the line. And so they started putting legislation on the books. I mean, the, the police themselves, um, prefecture by prefecture, not federal laws, but local laws, which made it a crime to do business with the Yakuza and made it a crime to offer them contracts. Um, many businesses now have clauses um, that says, if you're a Yakuza, we have the right to refuse you service. And what, what that actually means is that if you're a Yakuza now, you can't rent an apartment, you can't get a phone, you can't rent a car. And life is very inconvenient. And since those laws went on the books nationwide, October 1st, 2011, the numbers have been dropping very rapidly. You know, Japan could have done this 20 years ago, except they did it 12 years ago, and it has been very effective. So what were the numbers in their prime, and what are they like now? Oh, for almost 20 years, the numbers were 80,000, and now they are close to 15,000. So at, at 2011, in 2011, it was about 80,000 Yakuza. Now we're in 2023, it's about 15,000 Yakuza. Those are the people left. Another notorious point of speculation is the links between the Yakuza and business and politics in Japan. Has that also declined? Uh, you know, the transparent ones have declined. Uh, there's not much advantage in using the Yakuza anymore, but you should keep in mind that Japan's leading political party, the Liberal Democratic Party, was founded by a Yakuza member named Kodama Yoshio. Kodama was so well connected to the Yakuza that in 1962, he he and the pres and the leader of the Yamaguchi Gumi and and the leader of another crime group were members of the Wrestling Federation at a time when wrestling was one of the most popular sports in Japan. I mean, can you imagine having like the Pro Boxing Federation run by three? you know, Australian gangsters. I mean, that's how powerful they were. And, and, you know, you have a political party that is founded by Yakuza, with Yakuza money. Um, of course, they're going to have lots of power because it's their people in there. We've talked about uh, how closely you engaged with the Japanese underworld in your reporting years and beyond. And that got... Uh Pretty hairy for you more than once, Jake. In fact, you actually got beaten up on one occasion. Um, could you tell us about that and how you managed, I suppose, that very complex balance between connections with the police and connections with Yakuza? Well, connections with the police are like this. The police, you can give them information that you have from the Yakuza. That's fine. That's part of barter, right? I, I got this information. It's a good story for me. It's a good investigation for you. Um, and Yakuza will give you information about rival gangs, hoping that you go to the police so that they can crush their enemies. And that's kind of part of the game. But you can never take information, almost never, from the police and give it to the Yakuza. Then you also have to be aware that, you know, you can't be friends with every faction. So if you are if you have got good friends in the Inigawa Kai, you can't be chumming up with uh, Sumiyoshi Kai. So it's a very weird little dance. But... As a reporter, I mean, I, I, yeah, I have some ethical qualms about this. Yakuza have really good information because blackmail and extortion is their business. Uh, very early on, this one boss in the CBO, um, Kaneko Naoya, said to me, uh, as I was sipping tea in his office, he said, 
you know, you and I are in the same business. We are in this information business, which I found kind of offensive. But he said, like, you make your living by finding out stories that people don't want written and writing them and you have a scoop. And we make a living by finding stories that people don't want written and making sure that you don't write them and we get paid for doing that. And I was like, well, you know, I, I mean, I can see there's an equivalency there. It's not the same thing. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, you've mentioned on many occasions the surprisingly large percentage of Yakuza members who are foreigners, often Korean Japanese, uh, and Saigo was American Japanese. As the numbers of, of Yakuza have declined, has the, the, the mix and the presence of foreigners in the organisations uh, remained as high as it, as it once did? Um, I would say that the percentage of Korean Japanese has risen in the sense that they're the people that stay. Japan used to have an outcast class called the Burakumin. Traditionally, people who were butchers or leather workers, discrimination against them has diminished. Discrimination against Korean Japanese is still very strong. And and many of them feel like, you know, we can't be part of the normal civilian world because we're always going to be discriminated against. So the ratio of probably Korean Japanese Yakuza has actually risen as the numbers go down. I, I would say, as so people ask, like, you know, why are you able to talk to these people? Um, you know, how do you get along with them? So being a foreigner was a, a, an incredible advantage. And, you know, most Koreans in Japan, uh, many who are brought over as slave labor, they look like the Japanese, like they speak Japanese. Maybe they don't even speak Korean, but they're not treated the same when people realize that they are Korean. And so they're kind of like the Jews of Japan. They get blamed for everything. So some, you know, so, you know, some of the Korean Yakuza would say to me, like, oh, like, we're like the Jews of Japan and you're a Jew, so you understand our position. And I would be like, yeah, man, like, practically the same, you and me. But, you know, it, 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 it's a good way to start a conversation. And if it works to your advantage, why not milk that angle? Well, the last Yakuza is yet another wild ride from Jake Adelstein. Thank you so much for speaking with us on Sunday Extra. No, it was a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Jake's the author of the memoir Tokyo Vice, now a TV series, and his latest book released in Australia in October is The Last Yakuza, Life and Death in the Japanese Underworld. Find more great ABC RN stories that take you beyond the headlines on the ABC Listen app.